All right. First Timothy chapter 4. We will finish chapter 4 tonight. Two chapters to go after that. But we've got a little bit of a turn tonight, and it's, uh, I, I like it. Um, in much of 1 Timothy, what Paul is doing is dealing with error, right? Confronting false teachers. Um, in this section, he's going to kind of take a turn and stop dealing with error and start dealing with truth uh, in his encouragement and exhortation of Timothy. He's speaking to Timothy as a minister. So in essence, I get to preach to myself tonight because this is a message to the preacher, to the teacher, uh, to the one that that handles God's word. Um, Now, I think, again, there's still application for all of us. We all have aspects of that. You may never stand in a pulpit, and yet you will teach the gospel. You will do these things. You will be a witness. And so there are things we can all glean from this. Uh, But we will see things very specifically to Timothy tonight that he is to continue doing in order to maintain his witness uh, in the midst of a really difficult uh, ministry uh, context. So let's read our text. We're going to start in verse 11. And Paul says, prescribe and teach these things. These things are what he just talked about. But let no one look down on you for your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery or the council of elders. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So several instructions, exhortations, and I just kind of laid them out like this. He's going to tell Timothy to instruct and to teach. He's going to tell him to stand tall and live well. He'll tell them to read, teach, and preach, good three things to be doing in front of the church, to exercise his gift, to be committed to the cause of ministry there, and then to pay attention uh, to both himself and his doctrine and to persevere. So a lot of different exhortations and encouragements here. Verse 11, he says, prescribe and teach these things. Well, in verse 6, if you just look back a few verses, It says, in pointing out these things to the brethren. He keeps saying these things in this verse. He's coming back to it. Uh, Now he's exhorting him. So so in verse 6, he said, point out these things to the brethren. In verse 11, he says, prescribe and teach these things. The same things, specifically the words of the faith and the sound doctrine uh, of verse 6 and the godliness of verse 8. Prescribe and teach the way of godliness. That word prescribe there is also translated in other places as command uh, or instruct. It's an authoritative transmission of a message. Parangelo is the Greek word. It's what you should do. Do these things. Prescribe these things to the congregation. Then he says, teach these things. Didasco, we've seen that word many, many times throughout this letter. And that's why you should do it. So prescribe it to them, tell them what they should do, and teach them why they are doing it, why they should do it. Uh, he's, ex- he's exhorting Timothy to teach the truth with authority. This is a common uh, admonition or imperative within the pastoral epistles. Teach and preach. 
1 Timothy 6.2, entrust and teach, 2 Timothy 2.2, speak and exhort and reprove, Titus 2.15. So he comes back to this theme over and over again. And both of these words, parangelo and didasco, are in the present tense, which means continue doing these things. Be prescribing, be teaching, continually do these things within the congregation. All right, verse 12, he gives them some encouragement. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. So let's break that sentence up a little bit, and we'll start with the bit of encouragement. Let no one look down on you or on your youthfulness. That word, look down, kataphroneo, is often translated despise. It has the connotation of disrespect in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 2. It's the word that is used in Matthew 6.24 when Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. So this is not just a dismissiveness. There's kind of some animosity in this. Uh, Romans 2.4 says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. So to think lightly, to, to disparage. Don't let anyone disparage you for your youthfulness. Now the word youthfulness is neotes. You can kind of see the first part there. You see neo. Neo means new, right? And so it's, it's, that's the Greek word. Neos is the root. It means new. It means young. It was often tied, this idea of neotes is often tied in the secular Greek world uh, to one that was of military age. So this is not child, but this is young, and, and it could extend all the way to age 40, but generally it was like about 30 years old. That was kind of the top of this neotes kind of designation. And so the church values age, values experience, rightfully so, that's a good thing, but at the same time, we know this well, age is not always indicative of wisdom. <laughs> it's not an automatic that that happens, uh, and youth is not an automatic for ignorance. Uh, youth is oftentimes viewed with suspicion, and as they get older, I get more and more suspicious, right? You know, maybe you've experienced that. And, and it's under that suspicion that Paul is backing Timothy's leadership. Then listen, you may have people saying this. I know they're saying this. Don't let them discourage you with this. Uh, remember, Timothy is probably younger than every elder that he's advising in this church. I found a quote here. It's a speech from the House of Commons. Uh, William Pitt, there are two William Pitts. This is William Pitt, the elder. Uh, he became prime minister of England. But he was 33 years old in the House of Commons, and he, he had this quote. He said, he was, the, the atrocious crime of being a young man, I will neither attempt to palliate or deny. Right? It kind of is what it is. Here I am in this position, and I've been put in this position. I can't change my age for you. What I can do is, is just, uh, exhibit why I'm qualified for this position. And I think Paul is the perfect one to say this. Because remember, Paul rose to prominence in the Jewish world at a very young age. I think he probably experienced much of what Timothy is experiencing. Remember, we, we, we talked about with Paul uh, back in the book of Acts, um, you know, what was he married, these different kinds of ideas. Was he part of the Sanhedrin, all that? Well, you know, you had to be 35 to be in the Sanhedrin. So if Paul was in the Sanhedrin, he was the youngest guy there. If he wasn't, he was on the track to that. And so he was this kind of rock star in the Jewish world. Uh, and he certainly would have experienced some of this as well. If anyone knows what Paul is going through, uh, or what Timothy is going through, it's, it's probably Paul. So 
our question here is, how old is Timothy? Right? Just a little bit of a tangent so we can figure that out. Uh, we can't get it down to the day, but we can get a good idea of how old he is. And I'll show you this from a perspective timeline. Paul's second missionary journey, and we're coming up on this quickly in the book of Acts, begins in Acts 15.36, and I would put that in about 50 A.D., okay? early 50 A.D. And soon into that missionary journey, Paul meets Timothy. And Timothy joins him and starts to travel with him. So if we stop there for a second, Timothy's age is not mentioned in Acts chapter 16, but he's called a son in Acts 16.1. So at minimum, that means he's 12 years old. But I would wager he's probably older than that. I don't expect Paul picking up a 12-year-old and going on the missionary journey with him. He's probably a little bit older than that. Even though he would take on the, start doing the work of his father and whatnot at 12 years old, I don't know that Paul would have said, hey, this is the guy that I need to support me on the missionary journey. I think he would be a little bit older than that. Um, and, and I'll tell you why. We, we know that in 51 and 52, Timothy is with Paul in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians 1.19, we find out that Timothy preached in Corinth. So he's old enough where he can preach the gospel when they're in Corinth. And again, I, the thought of a 13-year-old preacher, not impossible, but I think that seems unlikely. I think he must be a little bit older. So I would wager that on that journey, Timothy is probably between the ages of 18 and 22. I think he's a young man. I think that's about probably where he would be. Uh, in Between 53 and 56, uh, Paul, uh, Paul sends Timothy to Corinth as his representative. Again, I'm not sure a 15-year-old traveling alone would go to Corinth as Paul's emissary, so I think he must be a little bit older. So we're writing now 1 Timothy, or reading through 1 Timothy, 12 to 14 years after Paul first met Timothy. Right? So if Timothy was 18 years old when Paul met him, do the math, he's 30, 32, he's somewhere in that area, okay? And I think that makes a lot of sense because in the Jewish mindset, one's rabbinic ministry began at what age? At 30. When did Jesus start his ministry? 30 years old. Okay? It was kind of the magic number in the Jewish world. And even though we're talking about this in a Christian context, uh, and, and we'll see this in, in Acts this week, uh, the early Christian church did not b- abandon all Jewish kind of ways of thinking and doing things. Uh, elders are a very Jewish way of doing things. We see that in the Old Testament. Uh, I, I don't think that Paul would have established Timothy uh, as a 20-year-old, as a senior pastor. I think Timothy would have, I think Paul would have thought, okay, he's 30, he's 32, he's 33, whatever Timothy may be. I think that would be an appropriate age for Paul to say, okay, you're ready to lead a ministry here uh, in Ephesus. So at the writing, there's my conclusion at the bottom. I think Timothy is somewhere between 30 and 35. So uh, young, but not teenage or early 20s young. That's, that's That's important to understand. So despite being 30 years old or so, Timothy is still viewed as young by some members of the Ephesian congregation. And some people have trouble with someone younger than them being their teacher, being their leader. Um, What's clear here is that Timothy is a shepherd and an overseer at the church at Ephesus. In fact, I would argue that he's the primary shepherd. If we were using modern terminology, I think Timothy is the senior pastor. There are multiple elders here at Ephesus, but Timothy is the primary shepherd, and he's younger than much of his congregation. That's just the fact. And and, and it's his first pastorate, and and it's both in an established church in a difficult ministry context. He's dealing with false teachers right off the bat. 
And you think, well, why would Paul put Timothy in this position? Well, what does that tell you of what Paul thought of Timothy at the age of 30? This guy can handle it. He wouldn't have put someone in such a prominent position if he didn't think that Timothy had the maturity to handle it. He knows Timothy. He trusts Timothy. He has poured his life into Timothy. This is his son in the faith. I would say just as there's no magic age of accountability in which a child must or can believe, there's no magic age for one to begin pastoral ministry. Now, of course, we see in, in the earlier chapters, you don't want to rush anybody into that. But at the same time, there's no magic number. What matters outside of his obvious faith and commitment to Christ is his maturity, his character, his passion to serve, his track record. And Timothy already has that as, uh, as a young man because he joined Paul as a young man. As an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old or a 20-year-old, he was traveling with the Apostle Paul. Boy, that's, uh, that's a master's course on how to do ministry, right? Uh, and a couple modern examples, if we wanted to put this into context, uh, R.C. Sproul founded Ligonier, Ligonier Ministries when he was 32 years old. John MacArthur was called to pastor Grace Community Church five months shy of his 30th birthday. Okay? So let's not just say, well, nope, we can't, we can't do that because he's X number of years old. No, that's, that's not what we see here. We have to look at character and maturity. His charge to Timothy is this. Don't let him look down on you because of your youthfulness and show yourself an example of those who believe. So Timothy's pursuit and practice of godliness must serve as an example. The Greek word there is tupas. We've seen that before. Type is the word to the flock that he shepherds. Titus is given the same charge in Titus 2.7. Elders are called to be a tupas or an example by Peter in 1 Peter 5.3. That word, tupas, example here, is a model. It's a pattern. Uh, in Romans 5.14, Adam is a tupas of Christ, the first Adam and the second Adam. In 1 Corinthians 10, the failures of the Israelites in the wilderness serve as a tupas for us so that we don't make the same mistakes. Hebrews does that in the same way. The earthly tabernacle was a tupas of the tabernacle in heaven. It was a representation of that. We see that in Hebrews 8.5. And, and, and then we see this idea of being an example. Paul often encourages believers to follow his example. Philippians 3.17, 2 Thessalonians 3.9. And I think the lesson for all of us in that is uh, the fact that is that if you're not willing to be watched and learned from, you're kind of missing a large part of your responsibility as a Christian. Now, I know if you're like me, you know, I, I don't want to create little Dave's running around. I don't need disciples of me, right? And, and so we kind of see that and go, oh, I'm, you know, we're, we're, remember the old uh, uh, Charles Barkley uh, commercial from the 90s? I'm not a role model. I'm not a role model. No, you are because people are looking at you whether you want to be or not. And so when you take on that label of Christ follower, eyes are on you, right? And so you must be comfortable with the idea that people are going to watch you and say, that's how Christians act. Right? There is a responsibility that we carry. Now, don't minimize the fact that if you are in a position of prominence, if you are preaching, if you are teaching, if you are a pastor, if you are an elder, well, that gets ramped up, most certainly. But, it, but, but it's something that gets lined up for all of us. Whether we like it or not, when we identify with Christ, people are watching, for better or for worse. And the fact that Paul focuses his attention here as Timothy as a leader and again, rightfully so, because more attention is going to be put on Timothy. It, it doesn't remove that same requirement from every Christian. 
And then he goes on to give several areas in which Timothy is supposed to be an example. And I would divide these up into two sections, two external qualities and three internal qualities. Now, if you have a King James or a New King James in your lap, you will have a sixth term, spirit, is listed there. Uh, the, the, the modern translations don't have that because the better manuscripts don't have spirit. It's not So if you have an ESV or a NASB, it's, it's probably not there. If you have a King James, it is. Um, doesn't really matter. It was probably added, and we should have a good spirit as well. But anyway, let's go through each one of these. The external things we are to be doing. Speech. We know that word, logos. Okay, that's the word from John 1.1. 1, 1. So literally, you are to be an example in word, in your logos. So I would say this refers to all manner of verbal expression, how we speak. We should be known for wise words. We should be known for careful words. We should be slow to use those words. Uh, Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Hey, that, I think that's the idea of you, your speech needs to represent your faith. Second, he goes to conduct. Anastrophe, we've seen that before. If you have a King James, it's conversation. Uh, that's often translated manner of life. So this conduct, conversation, manner of life, the way in which you live your life before others. It's what we would call in our modern parlance, your walk. What does your walk look like? When people think of you, what would they describe your life to be like? 1 Peter 1.15 says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, your anastrophe, your conduct, your manner of life. You should be seen as who you are. And if you are in Christ, then your life should reflect it. Then he says you are to possess these three internal things. And he starts with love, that word agape, that another Greek word we know pretty well. The unconditional, uh, committed love modeled by Christ. This is that love that, that he commands his disciples in John 13, 35. By, all, by this, all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another, if you have agape for one another. Now, I think we've talked about this before, but there are many words in the Greek language for love. Agape is the highest standard of love. It is the unconditional idea. Uh, I found this in one of the commentaries this week, but William Barclay defines it as unconquerable benevolence. That you are benevolent no matter what. That's, now, are we always like that? No, not always. <laughs> this is that whole conversation that Jesus has with Peter in John 21. And he says, you know, Peter, do you agape me? And he says, Lord, you know, you know I love you. And Peter says, you know I phileo you. You know I have brotherly love for you. You know, oh, Peter, do you agape me? And he's just, Peter's just getting crushed by it. And then the third time, Jesus says, Peter, do you phileo me? And he says, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. You know, I have brotherly love for you. I, I, Peter's going... I, I want to have agape love for you, but I've obviously failed miserably in doing that. I want to do that, Lord, but you know how much I love you, and I, and I still fail, and, and, and Jesus picks him up and says, feed my sheep. That's, that's what I need you to do. Show your unconditional love for me in feeding my sheep. That's the same idea here with Timothy. Second, faith. Now, when we see faith, we often tie that to salvation, right? That, that pistis or pistuo, to have faith, to believe um, is there, and that's certainly a, a, an important thing. I think what we see here in the application to our lives is it, it's a given that a Christian has faith. I think what Paul is saying here is you must be faithful. You must be loyal. You must be dependable. You must be trustworthy because loyalty to Christ first and foremost will result in loyalty and faith to one another, right? So be loving to those around you. Be faithful to those. Be trustworthy. Don't be above reproach. And then finally he says you need to possess purity. 
Purity, this word hagneia, is only used here and in chapter 5, verse 2 in the entire New Testament. In that, re- that verse, it's in reference to the women in the church. But I think, and normally when we hear purity, we think sexual purity, and that's certainly encompassed in this, but it's even larger than that, that it's both sexual purity and integrity of heart. Like an in, a person with integrity. Uh, one commentator said, Christians ought to have a standard of honor and honesty, of self-control and chastity, of discipline and consideration far above the standards of the world. Hey, it's, hey, well, that guy's a liar. I don't lie like he does. Okay, great. You, you want like a prize for that? Like that's not that impressive. What, what, why, why do you do this? Why do you do these things? Uh, what, what, what is it that makes you hold to this this pure standard of conduct and faith and love and those kinds of things. And so you are, we are to be pure in heart in every way. So your speech should reflect your faith. Your conduct, the way of life should reflect your faith. And what are those qualities? Love, faith, purity. Now, how, now, how do you do these things in the church? What are his responsibilities as a pastor? We see that in verse 13. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. So that, that start there, until I come, I think that stresses the fact that, that Timothy's words are Paul's words, right? That, that, that until I come, I put you there, I'm planning on coming back, but you are my representative there. Timothy was given authority by an apostle. That's a big deal, right? That's where these early uh, teachers and whatnot got their authority from. And in case he never comes, And we're not sure he ever does. We don't know if he ever made it back to Ephesus. Paul makes it clear that Timothy is in charge. He's the successor, uh, just as Moses did with Joshua. But long before Moses died, they knew Joshua was going to be the guy that was going to take the mantle and lead him into the promised land. The heir apparent here then was Joshua. Here it's Timothy. And he gives them three tasks. The public reading of scripture, exhortation, and teaching. Now, Some will look at this and go, well, this is what a church service should look like. Well, yes, but that doesn't mean that Timothy and the church should not also pray, should not also sing, should not all practice ordinances. This isn't a verse that's supposed to say this is what every service is supposed to look like. But he says, here's three things you need to be doing with your church. I mean, what's Timothy's chief responsibility right now in shepherding this church is opposing false teaching. And Paul is saying the best three ways to oppose false teaching is to read the scriptures, preach the scriptures, and teach the scriptures. That is your defense against false teaching. Again, if you wanted to sum these up in three words, it's reading, preaching, and teaching. That's what he wants him to do. Now, that first word, when it says the public reading of scripture, it really is one word. Anagnosis is the word that's there. Uh, and and it, it literally is, just says reading. Devote yourself to reading. Um, it's used two other times in the New Testament both in reference to the reading of the Hebrew scriptures in the synagogues. So it's understood as public reading, because when you went to the Jewish synagogue, the rabbis would read the scriptures. There was always a part of the the service that was devoted to the reading of scriptures. Paul's saying we do the same thing within the church. That inference of the public reading of the scriptures is there, even though that's not the literal translation. But the starting point is the word of God. What's the first thing we should do in church? The word of God. Read the word. And and if that's out of order, if it's man-driven, if it's topic-driven, if it's it's desire-driven and not word-driven, we're going to be in trouble. And who personified that approach? The false teachers. The false teachers threw out the word of God and drove on with their own desires. He's saying, nope, start with the scriptures. 
Because if the Scriptures are the Word of God, then they are the authoritative piece. Now, what does he mean by the Scriptures at this point in church history? Well, by the early 60s, some of the, the, the A.D. 60s, not the 1960s, um, some of the New Testament books may have been included. They may have some of the New Testament writings at this point. Most of the time when scriptures, the graphe, the writings, are brought up in the New Testament, it references the Old Testament because that was the Bible of the early church. By the time we get to the 60s, I think we probably do have some of the early books getting circulated. Matthew, I think, certainly. Uh, I think uh, James, certainly. Uh, And now we've got Paul's letters starting to be circulated throughout all this. And in just a few years, I would say three years or so after this was written, in 2 Peter 3.16, Peter affirms Paul's writings as graphe, as scriptures. Okay, so certainly these New Testament epistles and gospels are starting to move into the readings, but most of it, the majority of it, probably still would have been Old Testament. Um, so Old Testament and New Testament if not here, very soon afterwards, were being read publicly together in the church. And and Kent Hughes gives two reasons why uh, there would have been both, uh, uh, both readings of both Old Testament and New Testament. He says, one, it emphasized the radical continuity between the Old Testament and New Testament, that this was following the same narrative of redemption. And two, it meant that the authority of the preaching that followed, the exhortation that followed, was secondary and derived from the authority of the Scripture. It's not, I preach what I want, and then we throw a little Scripture cherry on top. No, the Scripture is the meat. The preaching is what what stands beside that. And, And I think what you can see here is the fact that we are starting with the public reading of Scripture and following that with preaching is that biblical exposition was the norm in the early church. That's how the Word was supposed to be preached and taught. And again... Bringing it back to ourselves, this strengthens our commitment to expository preaching. Uh, It's this simple. People don't gather together to hear the opinions of the preacher. I mean, they might, but (laughs) I don't know how much use that is. They gather together to hear the word of God. There's a reason we are a Bible church. That's why we come together. So I say with confidence that any preaching that does not guide the listener through the scriptures is a departure from the apostolic practice of the early church. If, if the scriptures are not driving the train, okay, that's not to say you couldn't give a topical sermon based in a scripture, but if the scripture isn't the thing that's holding it together, then it's based on man's opinion. And maybe that man gets lucky and gets it right that Sunday, but there's a good chance he's going to get it wrong. Right? That, that Again, I've, I've said this before. I can give you advice, and it might even be good advice. It might even be helpful advice, but it's not Scripture. And it can't be applied to all situations and all times, because I don't have that ability. Second thing he says is exhortation. Now, you might recognize that word a little bit underneath it. Paraclesis is the word. You'll remember, perhaps, in the book of Acts, that Barnabas is called the huias paraclesias, the son of encouragement. The son of encouragement. You may remember that uh, the Holy Spirit is referred to in the Gospel of John by Jesus as the paraclete, the comforter. So comfort, encouragement, exhortation. It, It can mean all of those different things. Specifically what it means here is moral instruction towards godliness. 
Conforming your mind to Christ, taking what's in the scriptures, interpreting it, and implying it. It's it's the preaching of the word. Uh, It has been said that that the Christian message must always end in Christian action. It's not just words, it must result in action. Christianity is truth, but it's truth in action. Finally, he says you are to teach didascalia. Teaching solidifies doctrine. Teaching strengthens the intellect in terms of Christian faith and doctrine. In other words, we must know what and why before we can know how. We need to establish context and meaning and what's being said here before we can put it into action. So I would say, like, you know, people will ask sometimes, well, what's the difference between preaching and teaching? Well, it's, sometimes it's hard to define that with clear lines because oftentimes it's both. I, I, I don't think you can do a sermon without doing at least a little bit of both. You might be able to do a lecture without doing preaching, but you're not going to be able to do a sermon that way. And so uh, I would say, with, in my case, uh, my preaching always involves teaching, but my teaching doesn't always involve preaching although it probably does more and more as the years go on. That that teaching doesn't necessarily include preaching, but I think preaching has to include teaching. Does that make sense? I think you have to have that together in this whole thing. But but ranking that in that ideal, word of God, preach it and teach it. That's, that's, that's the basic understanding of how we are to combat false narratives and, and beliefs that aren't accurate to the Bible. We do have some snapshots in early church history of what the church looks like. And I want to show you an excerpt here from Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr was a, uh, a, a, a third century, uh, or second century, second century church leader. And he had a book called The First Apology, and this is what he says about the church service. On the day called the Day of the Sun, a gathering takes place of all who live in the towns or in the country in one place. The memoirs of the apostles, those would be the gospels, or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then the reader stops, and the leader by word of mouth impresses and urges to the imitation of these good things. Then we all stand together and send forth prayers. Well, what do you see there? The reading of the word, teaching and preaching, and prayer. That's what the church service looked like, okay? And that's what we should be doing. That's what we should be following, okay? Now, again, we don't mention the ordinances there. We don't necessarily mention singing, and yet we know those things were evident and present in the church as well. But that's your basic structure for a church service. All right, verse 14, Paul goes on and says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Now that's a loaded verse that we've got there. But we talk about Timothy's spiritual gift. The Greek word for spiritual gift is charismatos. It's where the whole movement gets charismatic from, or a charismatic church, because they are emphasizing the spiritual gifts. Okay, so charisma is gift, but charismatos here. What is Timothy's spiritual gift? Well, based on what he's been exhorted to do throughout this letter, I think it's most likely preaching and teaching. I think that's very clear. He wouldn't be in the position he's in if that weren't the case. Once again, spiritual gifts are recognized affirmed and practiced only in one place? And what's the answer? It's the local church. That's where spiritual gifts are recognized, affirmed, and practiced. So the gift of preaching isn't of much use outside of the church, is it? Now, I guess I could be a motivational speaker. (laughs) Those are popular nowadays. But in terms of preaching the word of God, That's the value of the church. That's what the church provides. That's what it is. The preacher's commission came from the church, 
His work is within the church, and his duty is to build others into that church. It never, even, even if I'm outside, even if you're outside, witnessing to people, sharing the gospel with people, the drive is to bring them into the church. Right? They, they, again, as I said uh, on Sunday, the idea of going out, sharing the gospel, having somebody pray a prayer, telling them they're saved, and leaving never to see them again is entirely foreign to Paul's methodology. That is not how they would have done things in those days. What we have here is the encouragement from a spiritual father to a spiritual son. Paul to Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, you've been called to this. God confirmed it. Son, preach the word. Keep preaching. Just keep doing I know it's discouraging. I know it's tough. I know there's opposition. Keep preaching the word. Don't neglect the gift that you've been given. He's not saying, you know what, maybe you'll find another job. I know you like this job. Maybe you can find another job. It's not a job. You've been given this spiritual gift by God. You need to exercise it. Sometimes preachers need to be reminded of their calling, not their occupation, their calling. And if the calling is from God, then running from that calling would not be a good thing. Okay? Now, let's look at some of the details in this whole thing. What is the prophetic utterance? What does that mean? Anytime we start hearing people talking about prophetic utterances, we all get a little bit nervous. Because <laughs> most people in the modern church that are doing prophetic utterances ain't doing prophetic utterances. Okay? It's doing something else entirely. What is the prophetic utterance? When did it occur? I, I think the best guess, I think the model for these prophetic utterances is Acts 13. When uh, the Holy Spirit speaks to the church in Antioch through the prophets and sets apart Paul and Barnabas for that work. Now, Luke doesn't give us a ton of details there. He just says that there were prophets there, that the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, set Paul and Barnabas apart for the work that I have. Right? So I think most likely that he spoke through those prophets of the early church in the New Testament church as well and gave some, uh, some, some different events like that. Um, I, I think that's the, that's the conduit, the prophets of the early church. When did this happen? Well, we don't really know. Um, maybe when Paul left Timothy in Ephesus. Maybe there was a, a service that happened uh, at that point when he was installed as the pastor. Perhaps when Paul first called Timothy to join him in Acts 16. Maybe there was a message that was given to him as a young man that you're going to be a preacher of the word. You're going to do these things. Um, we, we, maybe it's somewhere in between. Okay? The only answer is, uh, I don't know. It happened somewhere along the line because he talks about it now. But at some time in the past, there was, there was a prophetic utterance, a message from the Lord through prophets that said, Timothy, you're going to preach the word. You're going to lead churches. This is what you're going to do. Then he says that, that what accompanied that was a laying on of the hands by the presbytery. Okay, we always want to figure out what this presbytery is probably a weird translation for us. Okay, we're all of a sudden into Presbyterian and all that. Presbytery is just the plural of elders. Presbuteros is elder. Presbytery here is the elders or the council of elders. Which elders are we talking about? Again, I don't know. Uh, maybe Ephesus. Maybe Lystra where he was from. But what we know is one of the elders that laid the hands on him was Paul. Paul was there. He was one of these men that did this. And we see that in 2 Timothy 1.6 when he says, For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So Paul says, I was there when, when this, this hand-laying ceremony took place. Luke often uses that, that, this idea of the presbytery uh, in the book of Acts to refer to the Sanhedrin. 
that the Jewish group of elders would be called a presbytery as well in that sense. So I think it, it gives us those Jewish roots of the term, and it's modeled after the synagogue. Now, the laying on of the hands, that's always an interesting thing because that happens in many different contexts in scriptures as well. In the Jewish world, uh, the mature teachers would lay their hands on the younger teachers to commission them to be teachers, rabbis, those, that, that, that level of authority. It was an accreditation process. When the head rabbi lays his hands on you, you are now able to move in that same direction. Uh, Moses laid his hands on Joshua in Numbers 27 to commission him for leadership. So I think that's probably the best parallel here. The last question I have is, was this what we would call an ordination service? Well, ordination is a bit anachronistic, right? They they didn't necessarily do that in the early church, but I think it's the best contemporary uh, parallel that we can think of in our own minds. Uh, The major difference, of course, is that in Timothy's case, the major means of communication was the Holy Spirit in terms of coming divine utterance through prophets. We don't have that at our ordination services. But the laying on of hands by the elders was a a function of affirming Timothy's spiritual gift and his calling into ministry. It was in a local church somewhere, and elders affirmed this calling that he had. And, and, And again, if Timothy's gifting comes from God, and Timothy fails to exercise it for the glory of God and for the edification of the body... Timothy is guilty of running from what God has blessed him with. And that's Paul's encouragement here. You know this isn't just something you're choosing to do because you like it. This is a calling from God. Remember the spiritual gift that you have. Continuing in verse 15, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. So he kind of comes back to this idea of being an example. Take pains there. Melatao in the Greek, it's used only one other time in the New Testament. It means to devise, to attend carefully, to ponder over. Uh, the King James says there, meditate on these things. Um, I think intently on these things, do these things. Then it says, be absorbed in them, which is a really interesting translation. Because if you, if you look at your, uh, your scriptures there, let me find where it is on my page, you'll notice that absorbed is in italics. Absorbed is not in the text there. This is the interpreter's way of trying to uh, explain what Paul means. But the Greek there is en tutois isthi. Now, don't you know what that means? Three words. En is in. Okay, tutois is them or these, and isthi is from the Greek word imi, which means to be. Okay? So this is literally, uh, remember when Jesus uh, says ego imi, you know what the English translation is? I am. Okay? It's a to be verb. So literally, in these things, be. And so, you know, this is where you need to be, this is where your time needs to be. Take pains with these things. Meditate on them, think intently on them, study to show yourself approved, we might say, and be in them. Right? Know them so well that you are in them. These things of godliness, faith, purity, love, these things, conduct, speech, be in these things. One commentator says, live and breathe these things. So intense study of the word is the calling of the preacher and the teacher. Intellectual laziness is not allowed in this calling. I think if the Message Bible again was there, it would be use it or lose it. Um, that's <laughs> that's kind of what it is, right? That 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 a a preacher of the word 
I, I mean, I, I think about this in my own. Hey, I, I couldn't imagine. I, I, I'll tell you a story. I have a friend that uh, followed another guy into a pastorate, and this fo- previous pastor admitted to him that he was, he would, that this guy was studying for an advanced degree. So he gets to put a doctor in front of his name now. But he was studying for an advanced degree. This is the previous guy. And he told my friend that some weeks his, uh, his, he was so busy that he would just kind of wing it on Sundays. Right? I, yeah, I'm glad that was your reaction. I couldn't imagine. Like, I can't imagine stepping into a pulpit as a servant of God and going, ah, let's see what happens. Like, I, I, I've started writing out more and more of what I want to say because I need to be very careful about what I say about what God says. Right? And, and so what is he saying here? This isn't something you're just going to get up and do. Now, I mean, if somebody calls you on know, the moment to share the gospel, okay, right? But you're not going to exegete a text. You're not going to exposit scripture on the fly. It, it, it's, it's not there. And I'll back it up again. Um, I heard a sermon uh, that Vody Bauckham did several years ago. Isaiah shared it with you a while back because he's talking about worship. But he says we have such a misunderstanding of that because we've all seen the preacher, the preacher trick where the guy gets up in the pulpit and says, well, I was going to preach on this. But while I was sitting down here, the Lord told me to preach on this. And everybody goes, ooh, this is going to be good, right? As if the Lord doesn't, doesn't inform us during study in the week. As if the Holy Spirit is not involved in intense study during the week. As if that is somehow less than this magic moment before the, 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 the sermon. No, this, is, this is meant to be work. This is meant to be diligent. That's, that's the idea of the pastor, of the preacher. And he says, be absorbed in these things so that your progress will be evident. Your progress, that progress word, prokope. Paul uses the term twice in Philippians. Once in 112 to describe the progress of the gospel going out. Once in 125 to reference the progress of the believers in Philippi. And you know from Philippians, it's very positive. You guys are growing. You're becoming more mature. This is, this is a joy to Paul. The verbal form is used in Luke 2.52. When speaking of the young Jesus, Jesus kept increasing, kept progressing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Even Jesus progressed in the view of those around him. In the secular world, it was a term that meant the, the advancement in, in a certain philosophy or discipline. You would become more of a master at what you were pursuing. Interestingly enough, Paul uses the verbal form negatively in 2 Timothy two times in reference to the, un, the, the false teacher's progression towards ungodliness. So you're progressing somewhere. Make sure you're progressing towards the right goal. Is it progressing the other way leads to destruction? Again, I think the language here is most likely intentional because these false teachers, these early Gnostics, these Jewish masters would have been promising progress. That if you'll follow our way, you get to get to a higher level of spiritual enlightenment. There's progress there. And what's Paul saying? If you want progress, you need progress in the Word. You need progress in Scripture. That's the only place where true spiritual progress happens. Progress towards godliness, or more accurately, God-likeness. How are we to be Christ-like unless we know Christ? And how are we to know Christ if we're not in his word? Because that's where he reveals himself to us. So what is Paul saying to Timothy? Walk the walk. And walk it publicly. Walk it publicly. And walk it so that people notice. Not for your sake. Not the way the Pharisees did things. Not in a showy way. But walk it publicly for the sake of the gospel. 
Walk it publicly for the, the, for the maturity of the church. Isn't that Paul's life? Paul was once this, and then he was an entirely different creation. And he, and he showed everybody, I used to do this. He didn't hide from it. He walked publicly to show himself approved. Paul, Paul's saying, let him never be able to say about you that you don't know enough, that you don't read enough, you don't study enough, you don't live a Christian enough life, you're too young to lead. He's basically saying, shut the naysayers up with a pursuit of godliness. That when they look at you, they're like, uh, I got nothing to say. Like, I want to I wanna talk him down, and I can't say anything about him because the example of his life is too strong. Verse 16, continuing, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. So scrutinize both your behavior and your theology. Both of those things need to be under your microscope. Morality and doctrine have to be in line. Can't be like this. Morality and doctrine have to line up. Matthew Henry said, those who teach by their doctrine must teach by their life, else they pull down with one hand what they build up with the other. Pay close attention there is the Greek word epico. It's in Philippians 2.16, it's translated in the NASB as hold fast. Hold fast to your salvation and your teaching. The balance of life and doctrine is the key to spiritual success, if we wanted to put it that way. Now, we're never gonna, we never reach 100%, but our pursuit of godliness means we balance what we believe and how we live. Like That impacts one another. It's not this, well, this is the mind and this is the body, or uh, in, in this dichotomy of what we see in the modern world. Francis Schaeffer talked about this 50 years ago, but that the world divides everything up into, well, this is how you live your life, but you keep your faith over here. As if we as Christians could live our lives without bringing our faith into the public square. Right? That, that the, the modern world wants us to separate those two things and we're going, no, we can't separate those things because I'm in Christ. I live this way because of him. I believe every word of the Bible is true. This is what informs my worldview. I can't do anything, even if I'm a senator or a president or whatever, I bring this with me. And by the way, the other side brings it with them too. It's just a totally different worldview. It's, this, it's faith in something else. And to say, well, you know, we have science and you have faith. Well, okay, I don't think that science is what you think is science. But keep saying those things. But we've got to have that together. And so our doctrine will inform the way that we live. And, and, and doctrine has everything to do with life. I know we, people kind of think, hear that word doctrine, and they think that's stuffy and intellectual. But the fact is, uh, because what we believe about God determines how we live, our doctrine is really important. What we believe about church, what we believe about Christ, what we believe about the gospel. The more we know about God, the more we know about his workings, the more we will love him and the better we'll be able to serve him. The more we'll look like our Savior. How will we look like him if we're not spending time with him? And then the second half of 16, we'll finish there. Persevere in these things. There's these things, again, back to these, all these things that are encompassed in godliness. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now, these, this is another interesting verse that we want to take a minute on. Persevere in these things. Why should I persevere? Because as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Again, these things, same as in verse 11. Persevere means to persist, to stay, to remain, to continue. But if we just read this on the surface, we are at danger of perhaps misunderstanding what Paul is saying. Because it really contains two statements that we go, wait a second, what is he saying here? First, that Timothy could save himself. If you do this, you will ensure salvation for yourself. 
And the second is that he could save his hearers as well. First of all, how could Timothy save himself? Self-salvation, we know, is impossible. Paul has repeatedly insisted that salvation is by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. That hasn't changed here. So clearly that's not what he's saying. Has he gone berserk and contradicted himself here at the end of the letter? No. So is, is Paul saying that if Timothy perseveres, then he will be saved? Of course not. We know that's not what Paul is saying. So if we get to this idea of eternal security, which comes into play here, the, the statement is that believers will persevere. That's the promise of Scripture. Believers will persevere. And the reason they will persevere is because God will preserve. Not because we work hard at persevering, but because God preserves us. And if Timothy persevered, his salvation would be evident to him as well as others. Yet this assurance that we have in Christ. I mean, if your belief structure is that you can lose your salvation, there is no assurance in that life. There is no confidence in what Christ has done if that's the case. Holy living and sound teaching, doctrine and morality are the inevitable fruits of saving faith. If you are saved, you will have fruit. There will be a change in your life. It's not that Timothy's endurance would merit salvation, but that a a stamina, a perseverance that produces holiness and doctrinal faithfulness gives evidence for Timothy's salvation. So when, when you're on the darkest day, you realize, all right, I've been saved. I've, he, he, Christ has done that to me. And then second, when faithful shepherds persevere, it's an important factor in the salvation of the flock. It doesn't mean the pastor's in charge of saving the flock, but it means his example impacts the spiritual walk of his congregation. The preacher's model of perseverance builds the same trait that's in the flock. If you've got a leader who is continually stumbling and fumbling and wandering, the congregation is going to show that. And in some cases, it will be destruction because of that. Spiritual sickness, spiritual uh, catastrophe. So salvation always and everywhere, we know this, I'm just reminding you of the truth, originates not in us, but in the grace of God. That's where salvation comes from. Nevertheless, the reality of our salvation has to be demonstrated in good works. And if you get that backwards, you've changed the gospel. But the fact is, because he has saved us, we now serve him. We now pursue his will. Good works should result of that. And it should be focused in love and in purity and in faith and those wonderful things. So it's in that sense that Paul tells us in other, uh, to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Not that you're not saved. But to examine that salvation, make sure you know that that salvation is legitimate. Remind yourself of what Christ has done. And the fact is, only those who persevere to the end will be saved. Perseverance is not the meritorious cause, but it's the ultimate evidence of our salvation. You know, and, and we've all experienced this or, or know of these things where some, we've got somebody that we love that at some point were committed to Christ, at least they seem to be. And then at some point in their life, they walked away, they faded away, and, and, and then, then they, they, they died, and we go, I, I don't, I'm not sure. I don't, have that, I don't have that assurance. Now, can we say for sure they never were saved, or if they just kind of lost their... You can't say that. But what has been removed in that situation? Any assurance, any confidence that you're going to see them in eternity. That, that's a burden that you leave with family if, you, if, if, that's the, if that's the case, and that's a difficult thing. 
Whereas if somebody perseveres to the end, what can we say at the end? We know exactly where he is. We know exactly where she is because her entire life, his entire life, the, the Lord saturated their conversation. They served, they loved, they did these things. Right? That, that, that perseverance is not what gets us saved. It's the evidence that Christ had us all the time. And if we lose that, it, 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 it's, it, again, I, I can't see anybody's heart. But there's no confidence in a life that doesn't produce fruit. That's, that's Paul's statement here. That, that's the message. Persevere to the end so there's no question about saving faith. Believe, keep believing, never stop believing. That's the idea. Let's end with this picture of a pastor that we find in Pilgrim's Progress. Not a great picture, but I couldn't find a big enough picture there on the left. But in Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read Pilgrim's Progress or you haven't read it recently, I'll remind you of a scene. Bunyan describes this scene where uh, Christian enters the house of the character who's called Interpreter. You might remember Interpreter is basically the Holy Spirit in Pilgrim's Progress. And in that house he's shown around, he's shown several things. But the first thing he sees is a picture. Interpreter shows him a painting or a portrait on the wall, and you can't quite see it in the picture, but I'll describe it. Uh, It says, Christian saw the picture of a very grave person hanging up against the wall, and and this was the fashion of it. It had eyes, there's a man on on that painting, it had eyes lifted up to heaven, the best of books in his hand, the law of truth was written upon its lips, the world was behind its back. It stood as if it pleaded with men, and a crown of gold did hang over its head. Christian asked Interpreter what the picture means, and this is what Interpreter said. The man whose picture this is, is one of a thousand. He can beget children, travail in birth with children, and nurse them himself when they are born. And whereas thou seest him with his eyes lift up to heaven, the best of books in his hand, and the law of truth writ on his lips, it is to show thee that his work is to know, and unfold dark things to sinners. Even as also thou seest him stand as if he pleaded with men. And whereas thou seest the world is cast behind him, and that a crown hangs over his head, that is to show thee that slighting and despising the things that are present, for the love that he hath to his master's service, he is sure in the world that comes next to have glory for his reward. Now, said the interpreter, I have showed thee this picture first, because the man whose picture this is, is the only man whom the Lord of the place, whither thou art going, hath authorized to be thy guide in all difficult places thou mayest meet with in the way. Wherefore, take good heed to what I have showed thee, and bear well in thy mind what thou hast seen, lest in thy journey thou meet with some that pretend to lead thee right, but their way goes down to death. Now, I know there was a lot of these and thous in there, but the footnote to that edition of Pilgrim's Progress adds this. This is a true picture of a gospel minister, one whom the Lord, the Spirit, has called and qualified for preaching the everlasting gospel. He is the one who despises the world, is dead to its pleasures and joys. His chief aim is to exalt and glorify the Lord Jesus, his atoning blood, justifying righteousness and finished salvation. And his greatest glory is to bring sinners to Christ, to point him out as the one way to them and to edify and to build up saints in him. But there are many who profess to do this, but turn poor sinners out of the way and point them to a righteousness of their own for justification in whole or in part. Of these the Spirit teaches us to beware. The former, he leads and directs souls to love and esteem highly for their labors and faith in the Lord and zeal for his honor and glory and for the salvation of souls. This is the picture of the gospel preacher. This is what 
I aspire to. This is what your elders uh, aspire to. This is what the one that has been given the spiritual gift of preaching and teaching is tasked with. And it's a lofty (laughs) perch. Uh, And it only comes from God. And so Paul gets with Timothy and says, I know you get discouraged. I know these things are, are crashing all around you. Stay focused on the one in front of you. Keep preaching the word. And, and, and you know you're supposed to be here. You've been given this gift. You've been called to this place. Keep preaching the word. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. <laughs> thank you for the gifts that you give us, and they are many. Um, thank you for the time that we can spend in your word because it is the only source of truth that we have. Lord, you have the monopoly on truth, and uh, we submit to it. And thank you for the time that we can study it, that we can be together uh, in your name and under your blood. Pray you bless us and keep us, Lord. Give us opportunities to serve. Give us opportunities to love. Convict us. Help us to pray more, to love more, to worship more, to be in your word more, for they are the words of life. And uh, we give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.